You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Hi, I'm Jennifer Wood. And I'm Jennifer Connor from Equestrian Businesswomen, and you're listening to Equestrian B2B, the podcast that brings together industry leaders, entrepreneurs, and equestrians for conversations about how they build and sustain a successful business. On today's show, we talked to Delia Nash about her experience in research and development, international sales, and winning the Grade 1 Golden Shaheen race in Dubai. Delia Nash has served as the Vice President of Sales and Director of New Business Development for Kentucky Performance Products, LLC, for the past 15 years. Prior to this, she worked in the equine nutrition research and development field. Nash became a partner in Kentucky Performance Products in 2017. One of her major responsibilities as Director of New Business Development is to oversee the research and development of all new products. In her role as VP of Sales, she travels the globe introducing Kentucky Performance Products supplements to a wide variety of audiences. Delia has spent more than 20 years overseeing and participating in equine nutrition research, primarily in the areas of vitamin E, bone metabolism, and more recently with a focus on glucose and insulin regulation. She is a contributing author on several published papers and also holds a patent on nutritional compositions for use in treating and preventing equine metabolic syndrome. She earned her Master's of Science in Equine Nutrition from the University of Limerick in her native Ireland. She lives on a farm in central Kentucky where she breeds thoroughbred racehorses. Join us at the 2023 Saratoga Women in Business Spectacular on July 11th through 16th at White Hollow Farm in Stillwater, New York. With this year's theme of wellness, prosperity, and wisdom, you can hear from speakers, listen to panels, participate in activities, and network at our cocktail party. Mark your calendar to save the dates now and stay tuned to hear more from equestrian businesswomen about the schedule and exciting news to come. Hi, Delia. It's so nice to have you on and have you join us today. It was great catching up with you at Cornell a couple of weeks ago um, at a conference, and I'm really happy and excited to have you on. Thank you very much. Excited to be on and uh, uh, have been listening to some of the podcasts during the week, and you do a fantastic job, so very happy to be on. Thank Thank you. Uh, We wanted to jump right in and get started uh, talking a little bit about your education and the company, um, your experience in university. Okay, well, like everything in life, I took a wrong turn before I took a right turn. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I'm a firm believer in sometimes you got to make a couple of mistakes before you figure things out. So initially, um, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. And thankfully, that didn't pan out because I would have made a terrible veterinarian because I don't have the patience for it. So <laughs> it happened for a reason. Um, so in Ireland, our system, our school system is a little bit different than than the US. We have to pick, even though we don't call it our major, but it's the equivalent of picking your major when we graduate the equivalent of high school. So at 18, when we enter college, we've had to already decide what track we're going down. Um, so I didn't get into vet school, thankfully. Um, and my next choice, I really enjoyed chemistry in school. So my next choice was an applied chemistry, uh, degree. And, uh, 
let's just say that didn't work out so good for me. I applied myself, but it wasn't to my studies. Being <laughs> 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 serious, I uh, I got in there, and yes, I did love chemistry, but it was very much a very scientist type tract and that just wasn't me i mean it was way too much white coat and laboratory type environment for me so instead of backing out i decided well i kind of like this university so i had a great year (laughs) really study because i had made the decision that it wasn't for me yeah well needless to say i didn't do very well when the exams rolled around so i had to kind of retool so then i ended up that university was uh, University College Galway. So then I ended up uh, reapplying and doing uh, equine science degree at the University of Limerick. And that kind of got me going on, on, on the right track, really where my interests uh, were. So, you know, like I say, sometimes you've got to make a mistake to mm. figure out uh, the right road. Oh, yeah, sure. absolutely. Sometimes you have to be thankful for what didn't work out, right? Absolutely. I mean, there was two things there that didn't work out because I'm being serious. I would not have made a good vet. I mean, as you know, Jen, we interact with them on a daily basis and I have nothing but admiration for what they do, but it is not the profession for me. I'm much happier on the side of the commercial side, you know, supporting them and and providing them with products. Um, But I just would have made a terrible vet because I I do. Patience is not something that I would be known for. (laughs) And what uh, were you doing um, with horses, like growing up? And how did you have the equine um, interest? Yeah, I grew up on a farm, and we always we always had horses. Um, that that love of horses I got from my dad. So you know, from the time I could walk, I was surrounded by horses. So that was that was always a big love of mine. So I was always going to be some way engaged with horses, I guess. Initially, growing up, I thought that the only way to really make a career out of that was to go down the veterinary channel. Obviously, Mm. being out in the world now, I realize that there's so many opportunities. But in my own narrow mind back then, I think it was like the veterinary tract or else it just have to be a pastime and earn my living elsewhere. But thankfully, I've, I've learned different. Right. What part of Ireland are you from? I'm from County Limerick, so it's uh, down, down south. Um, it's it's a pretty decent horse county, uh, but very much known for its dairy farms. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's plenty of horses, and you know a lot of Irish people are very connected to the horse, regardless whether they're actively involved in the horse industry or not. There's definitely a true connection with the horse, um, so you're never too far away from from horse related people. Yeah. And did you ride or were you more involved with thoroughbreds? Actually, I wasn't involved with thoroughbreds at all. Um, uh, we did the the show jumping scene as, as kids. Um, my dad would have been a bit of a wheeler and dealer in ponies. So if there was a good pony, generally didn't stay around for too long. But that was a good education as well. So, yeah, um, yeah. But I, mean, I had friends that were involved in the thoroughbred industry, but... My family, we were never involved in the thoroughbred industry. And how I got involved in the thoroughbred industry was when I did finally get on the right uh, career track um, and doing the equine science degree. Uh, the University of Limerick at the time, they had um, a eight-month work experience period in the second year of our degree. Um, and they 
did the placements and that placement it needed to be on a breeding farm and you could stay in Ireland but if you wanted to go uh, abroad they would help facilitate that as well so I think it was 13 or 14 of us uh, came to Kentucky and uh, that's kind of where you know I got involved in the thoroughbred industry and uh, from you know I've never I've never looked back I almost made another career mistake um, (laughs) at that stage because when we came here for eight months and we worked hard but we played hard as well and it was just a fantastic experience and you know just it was just a wonderful experience and I I didn't want to go back you know Mm. I still had two years to do my degree and there was a few of us that were thinking you know it's we've we've tasted the the money in our pockets we're working and it's mm-hmm. such a great place to be that we we just couldn't stomach the thought of having to go back for two years but thankfully I did um I think my dad would have came over and pulled me back anyway <laughs> I wasn't coming home so I don't think I would have gotten away with that decision but thankfully um I weighed that one up for a little bit longer and I made the right the right decision yeah so having the kind of early school experience in the U.S. and um, and knowing kind of the market elsewhere. What's your thought on the difference in equine nutrition uh, in the United States versus international markets? You know, I think in, in, in the modern era, there are differences for sure, but I think the way performance horses, be it racehorses, dressage, eventing, show jumping horses, or whatever, that we, we, they're so tightly managed um, anymore that there's not a huge difference in the nutrition. And I guess by that, what I mean is that in most countries, these performance horses are in stalls mm-hmm. for a big part of the day. So possibly in Europe, there there is more turnout than what I see here in the US, especially on the racetrack, because it's a different setup. Most people are training from their own facility. So they have that ability to get them out into small paddocks for a little kick in a buck around uh, most days. But as regards, very few performance horses are getting significant amount of grass uh, right. in, in any given day. So I think in the, in the in broad terms, I don't see a huge difference in nutrition. Obviously, in different countries, you have to adapt to climates. We do quite a bit of business in the Middle East, in Dubai mm-hmm. and Saudi Arabia. And obviously, they have extreme temperatures there and right. don't have grass. Right. So, you know, there are some challenges there. And uh, you know, they would use a lot more electrolytes, have some issues with sand colic and, and things like that. But, you know, the general nutrition side of things, I think a lot of a lot of feeds, we're all using the same type of grains. We're all mm-hmm. feeds now. So I don't I don't see massive differences there. And there's actually there's a lot of overlap in the in the companies that are supplying the feed as well. Yeah. Especially when I go to the Middle East, I see a lot of the European companies are actually supplying the feed to the Middle East. Right. And um, so I don't think it's as different now as maybe it was. 15 20 years ago and it's it's such a small um world in the in the equine world and there's so much transit of horses i think there has to be kind of a standardization of the products that are available and and the feeding um routine so i don't see massive uh differences yeah Um, you know there there are some little bit of difference in in grains and stuff that would be used just that are more native to one country to the other but when you 
when you dig down on it, the amount of carbohydrates, fiber and stuff like that, it's balanced. And, and again, we're all fortifying feeds with the vitamins and minerals, which is probably something that was missing a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And you said you did a study abroad program in Kentucky during your university years. Um, when did you actually make the move to the U.S.? So... I was here first in 96, and that was part of the work experience while I was still in, in university. And um, I graduated in 98. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it was 98 I graduated. And I was kind of over and back. Uh, I would come here for the summers and do sales and uh, did two breeding seasons at home. And then in 2000, I moved here permanently. Okay. Um, so when I was in university, I definitely got um, very focused on the nutrition side. And that's really where my interests were. Um, and that's, you know, I kind of decided that's where I wanted to uh, to progress. And so once I moved here in 2000, that's kind of, that's where my career has focused on, on, on since then. Mm-hmm. And how did you move into having a company that does those products? Well, when I initially moved here in 2000, I was working more in research and and product development and I was managing um, a research facility for Kentucky Equine Research. And I would not change that time for for anything. But again, it was very much a research environment. Yeah. And I was, I love the research and I love the science, but I also love the commercial side of things. Yeah. Um, so I always kind of wanted to move into the commercial side, but the experience that I got in those six years, you know, I think has been a huge part of um, how I've progressed since. And it certainly gives me, um, I don't know if you call it an advantage, or but it's certainly a big plus to me when I'm detailing product, uh, especially to the veterinarians. You know, I understand the product from from the concept, and some of these products I have been involved from the concept through, and I'm not not coming in looking at the research afterwards. I'm seeing yeah. the research as it comes in, and with some of the products, I actually did the research um, yeah. back back in the early 2000s. So I think that's been. Uh, you know, I wouldn't change that for the world, but long term, again, you know, I think it takes a, a very certain type of person to work in research and laboratory side of things for for their entire career. Yeah. And that to me is a very focused and detail oriented person. And if you if you really wanted to take me apart, there are not two things that you would say that I'm <laughs> And I'm more the bigger picture and can get very bored with the small details. Mm -hmm. Uh, But thankfully, I, I, you know, during those six years, uh, I did find it extremely interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I did pay attention in those six years, but I don't think it was something that I would have been happy doing forever. And in my opinion, if you're not happy doing it, you're not going to do it well. Mm -hmm. And so I think the timing was perfect when this opportunity opened up to come and work for Kentucky Performance Products. Um, and in my first couple of years here, I was still very much on the technical side with a little bit of sales exposure and things, you know, things just evolved. And then I moved a lot more into the commercial side. Um, and then in 2017, was offered the opportunity to become a partner in the company. So that's been mm-hmm. a you know great opportunity for me. And it's something that I always wanted to do. Um, you know, some people 
they don't want to have the headaches to have in their own company. I would yeah. it because I'm a firm believer. And again, it's, you know, different people for different courses. But yeah. to me, I prefer, I think you have headaches regardless. And, yeah. You know, in, in work environment and in business. And I prefer them to be my headaches and work through them and resolve them than to be working for somebody else. And that's just my personality. You know? Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I, I, I like working for myself. I like the challenges that it brings. Uh, so that's something that was always on my, on my radar. Um, and, you know, I think my business partner in, in this company now, she recognized that and, uh, you know, thankfully gave me the opportunity to, to, uh, to move into ownership. Nice. Okay, I want to go back a minute because I want to ask you, do you do any work in South Africa? We do not, and I have never <laughs> been to South Africa. Ah. <laughs> I was just curious because um, I have a friend who went to South Africa and she had a horse and she took it over there. And I was thinking when you were talking before about nutrition and I was like, she was feeding peanut leaves to her horse. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, she had shipped him in from... Um, France and it was like this whole thing because he was not doing well when he first got there but I was just I was thinking of all the places if that was one of the places you went because that was like a very interesting experience that she had and and questions that she had that she asked us uh she was actually on the podcast on like our second episode and Jen and I just laughed about her experience over there because it was super wild well yeah no I have not been to South Africa <laughs> a lot of our international business is focused in the Middle East and some mm -hmm. in South America and then a little bit in Europe. Yeah. Okay. Um, so can you kind of talk to us about like your um, product development process and, and the steps that you take to, to start thinking about a new product and, you know, how you get there? Yeah. And I, you know, it's not like there's a, a cookie cut approach, mm -hmm. but I would say that the, the, the things that generally uh, stimulate a, a product idea will be one that I see a need for it, um, uh, when I'm out and about. And that's something that I'll always ask uh, our customers and the vets about, you know, is there a product that you need that we don't have? Is there a particular challenge that you're having that you don't see a solution out there for? It? So that's, that's one way that we get ideas. You know, sometimes we're obviously aware of a particular issue and we know that there's not a good product uh, there for it. So that will you know, stimulate a, an idea. And then from that, you then have to figure out, start looking at different ingredients that might have a benefit to that. Um, and then you, you come up with a formula. And once you come up with the formula, then you have to to test it, obviously, and see if there is actual efficacy from it. So to get to that point, there is a lot of digging through the literature because, a lot of the good ideas are the, the the on the supplement side of the ingredients that we'll come up with to look at. They're probably ingredients that there's been a lot of work done maybe in, in humans mm. or even rodents. And then you have to try and apply that to the horse. But for us, that's just to get us to a stage where we have a formula to test. I mean, there are some companies then that will put that product on the market based on that kind of literature review from other species. For us, it's just, it's a, it's a way to get to a, a test formula. Mm -hmm. And then we generally will um, look and see 
who are the experts in that particular field that that we're studying and approach them um, to you know do a study and see if there's actually uh, some efficacy um, behind it. Um, so you know that's that's generally the approach and the time span on that can it can be anywhere from two to five years and, and even longer. Uh, wow. An example is we've we've got a product now for metabolic uh, syndrome and that's something that was on our our mind for I would say five or six years before I actually had a formula to test because we were aware equine metabolic syndrome is is becoming a bigger and bigger issue and there really was very little out there to address it even from the pharmaceutical side of things there was very little out there to address it so we were constantly thinking from a nutrition aspect obviously you don't want to give them a lot of grain and you don't give them access to grass but as regards something from the nutraceutical side that could help those guys you know there was there wasn't anything out there um and there was one particular ingredient that i had always been a a big fan of um from the literature that I saw on the human side, but uh, two things, well, I guess one main thing stopped me from moving forward with it, and that was it was an extremely expensive ingredient. Mm. And by the time you up the dose to what would be equivalent for a horse, in my opinion, it was going to be at a price point per day that people just weren't going to buy it. And yeah. we have to be conscious of that. You know, we're not looking to be the most economical product on the market, but we also can't have a product that's going to be eight, nine dollars a day because very few people are going to use it. Yeah. It's obviously from a commercial standpoint, from us, it's obviously a bust, but then people get very frustrated because they see a product that can help, but they can't afford it. So we don't we don't want to get into that situation. So I didn't move forward for several years until I was able to come up with a formula. I kept digging through the literature and I finally found some other ingredients that showed some synergy. Hmm. So my theory was that I was going to be able to use less of this ingredient with these other uh, ingredients and still have an effective product. And it turned out that it was actually more, um, it, it showed more efficacy combined at a lower level than the ingredient on its own had shown. Yeah. So, but it took a long time to get to that. Right. That's the product that, that, that that's the formula that I have the patent on, but it took a long, long time. Um, to actually get to a formula, not to mind the testing phase. Um, right. With that but, study, we we did um, we did the work at Michigan State University uh, on on that product. That's a really exciting product to be involved with. Is that on the market now? It is. It's a product called Insulinwise. Okay. Um, and it's uh, it. I think we launched it. In 2018, uh, at the end of 2018, it was launched at AEP, and it's uh, it's been a fantastic product for us, and it really is helping those those metabolic horses. Um, but again, you know, it it took a long, long time, but it was worth every 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 second of it. You know, it was, and not all products are as successful as that. You know? Right. Sometimes you go and do the research, and you don't get. The results that you're hoping for, or um, you know, I, you rarely find out in research that the product didn't work. What you find out is it didn't work under those circumstances. Right. Um, yeah. 
but it you know it's it's difficult to draw a conclusion from research saying this is dumped it, it doesn't work but you yeah. often find out under those circumstances that it was tested or under that 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 level that it that it didn't work but you know generally i think in research if you answer one question and you end up with um nine more questions right. probably a a pretty good outcome for research yeah <laughs> and, but it tends to throw up more questions than it answers but if you get if you get one or two answers you're in good shape it must have been so satisfying to see that product kind of hit the shelves and have it start helping horses after such a long process. It is. It really is, you know, and um, just when you're out there and you hear some of the success stories, um, you know, that that's just a great feeling because obviously we're a commercial company. We have to make make money and, and, and that is a big goal. Uh, but we also want to provide good quality products that provide solutions to people we don't ever want to sell somebody something that they don't need you know and i've often talked to customers and they'll say i've got this going on and would 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 your product help and if i think it won't help i tell them you know i I don't think it's going to help in that situation you know you can try it but i don't think it's going to help you in that situation because to me you know making the first sale has no significance. It's when you have somebody that comes back and buys your product two, three, four times, then you have a customer and you're not going to achieve that unless you're honest with the people at the, in, in, in the get-go. And, mm-hmm. you know, I can't sell something to to somebody if I don't believe in it myself. You yeah. know, I, I, can, I can be very persuasive if I believe in it because, you know, I feel like I'm helping that person. But if I, you know, I, I couldn't, sell products that don't have data and research behind it either mm-hmm. i have the confidence in the product then i can transmit that confidence i hope uh to to the customers but you know that's i don't ever want to sell somebody something that's just just for the sake of selling them. you know that right. that will give me zero satisfaction and in fact it probably will make me feel really bad about myself you know? <laughs> yeah. and you said you did um, like you did, a, you do a lot of research. What does that look like? Is it literally just sifting through papers online and and finding things? How do you? Yeah, I mean that? it is. Um, and again, you know, you may have an idea of a product in your mind, and the first place to start is sifting through PubMed to see what published papers are out there. And, you know, one paper kind of leads to another. Sometimes there's nothing, (laughs) Um, especially in horses. And then you have to look at other species. Then there may be very little there either. Right. Um, So, but, you know, you kind of have to continuously dig through because sometimes it is there. You've just looked, you've put in the wrong search phrase or you're thinking the wrong way. Um. And that's why, you know, you just you just have to keep those things floating around and just when I have some spare time, I'll, you know, do a search again or whatever. And you just it, it's it's an evolving process. You know, you mm-hmm. don't just sit down and everything comes together and you put it together and you call the universe and say, OK, we're ready to do the study. I mean, right. I wish it was like that. But, <laughs> yeah, it makes um, your life a lot easier. Yeah, it would. But, you know, when you look back on the process, you you think, Okay, it's good that it took that long because there's a lot of things that I had 
presumed in the initial start of this that were not right. And, you know, mm. if I just kind of skipped a few steps, I wouldn't have been, been aware of that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's something that to be viable as a company, you kind of have to have several of those things moving along at the same time. At different right. Because otherwise you're just going to go for very long periods without anything new. And you're still right. going to do that. I mean, we're a small company. We're not, you know, it's not like we got a big research team from the product development side in-house. It's, it's me. Now, right. We do utilize, um, we've got a very good consultant that I uh, I work with. And then, like I say, we, we, we develop very good relationships with the universities and the experts there. And, and that's, you know, that's a two-way relationship because they appreciate the funding. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the other thing about going to university. If you do a study, you know, you're losing control. They need to publish it. Right. Well, so if it doesn't work out for you, they still have to make it public. Exactly. So, yeah. you, you know, if you want to call it a risk, um, I don't see it so much as a risk because for us, if we don't see some efficacy, we don't want to put our name to it anyway. Right. So, you know, but if, if you're the type of company that you're going to sell this regardless and you're just hoping that you get some nice data to even develop your story further, well, then it is a risk. But yeah. You know, and, I, and sometimes you don't have the full story going, but you have enough to go to market and enough to show that there that there is efficacy and there is an application for it. And then you just kind of build on it from there. Then you then you kind of see the next phase. Maybe it might work in this situation as well. But then that's the next phase of the study, and you don't go out there telling people it's going to work over <laughs> here until you know that. So you know, we we can be doing research like elevate vitamin e that's been a huge product for us and that's been it's something that's a little bit of a different approach because you can say there's nothing novel about vitamin e vitamin e what's the big deal well it's the source of it and the bioavailability and that's what we've done a lot of work on through the years and we continue to do a lot of work on on that and showing not only the bioavailability benefits but the different applications and you know we've had some great relationships with again some of the key researchers in the neuromuscular diseases uh, mm-hmm. in that aspect uh, Dr. Finno at uh, UC Davis and Dr. Bauberg who's now at Michigan State and was at University of uh, Minnesota you know we we continue to do work with with both of those and um, that's been a, a fantastic product for us and something that we I did the original research on that product back in 2001 2002 here we are 20 plus years in and there's still you know data coming out on that product so (laughs) and that's the other thing about for us the life cycle of a product it's a gradual increase so some companies they'll put a huge amount of marketing in in the first year and they'll have that massive growth yeah and then it'll you know start to level off and and then go through the decline phase where Again, because we're a small company, we'll grow it gradually. And, you know, we look at the first three years still as the introductory phase. Mm. So we're not, you know, we're not looking for gangbuster sales. We're just looking to see that steady increase and to get the positive feedback from the marketplace as well. But, you know, the elevator is a good example. We're 20 plus years in and that product is still growing. Wow. And you said it's the schools or the universities that do the trials for your your product or your idea 
Um, we for a lot of it, it is. Yeah. Um, I currently I've got uh, um, a study going at uh, UGA, um, and then we're also supporting. I guess you could say we have two studies. One is completely funded by us, our formula, our concept. The other is a study uh, that Dr. Kelsey Hart was doing anyway. She does a lot of work on antioxidants and the oxidative stress load in some of these PPID horses and insulin dysregulated horses. So she was doing a study there where incorporated two of our products into that study and um, mm. have, have helped with uh, providing the product and stuff for that study. But then she's also doing another study for us on respiratory related issues. Uh, that is an, a new formula. Um, it, the product doesn't even have a name because mm. we have no idea if it's going to be viable or not. I mean, there are, we've we've have some preliminary data back, and there's some encouraging signs. So now we're moving on to the next uh, phase of that study, but we're probably going to be twelve months out before we have a data set. So we're probably two years out from that being a product if it does. Happen. Wow. Yeah, that's such a long process. I, I I feel like so many business owners, and I, I think it's longer for the type of product you have, but I think most people don't realize the time span from the concept of an idea to getting it to market. And it's really, like you said, you may not have had patience to be a vet, but I think it takes certain amount of patience <laughs> to guide these products to market too. Yeah. Well, I guess it, if if you were starting out, I think it would be, well, I don't think you could survive. Here. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the fact that we have an established company and a lot of very established products. Uh, so this is kind of going on in the background. Right. Um, but, you know, that's a very valid point as well. Just from financial stability, you have to be able to get to that point that you can maintain the company while you have these products going on or you have to have enough financial resources uh, going into it. So we're fortunate that, you know, we are an established company um, and that we we can have this going on in the background and it's not critical to our existence. You know, it's, right. it's critical to our future. Right. We have to keep growing the company, but it's not critical to today's bottom line. Right. To make payroll next month or something. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And and it's great that you guys have constant growth on the other products that you have because I know I'm you know being in the pharmaceutical space myself there's you know it it can go down sometimes you know and the market is a little up and down at at points so um, it's nice to hear that you have products that have kind of you've taken the approach where you're growing over time and you continue to grow where it's not that oh we've got a get all of our sales and get all of our money back and initially. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're fortunate um, in that we are a small company and yeah. we're not under pressure from shareholders or upper management because we are the upper management. And, and I, I mean, I'll be the first to admit, I love that, you know, I love being able to, they're my decisions and yeah. you know, I can you own them. And, and that's my personality. I mean, I I don't think anyone would really want me working for them anyway. And I don't think I could <laughs> anymore after being, you know, my own boss for so long because I can be a bit of a bull in the China shop uh, approach. Mm -hmm. But we definitely are fortunate 
you know, with our business structure that we're we're not under those pressures yeah. that you can be under in some of the in some of the bigger companies. And so that that truly is, I, I think, something that's you know, we I want to grow, but I don't. I want to grow within reason. Mm-hmm. I think, especially in our industry, and I'm sure Jen, you see it as well. I think it's becoming a lot more corporate every day. You know, from the distribution side, mm-hmm. the pharmaceutical side, and mm-hmm. I, I hate to see that because I think we're we're very much a relationship driven industry, mm-hmm. and. There's still fabulous people within our industry. It's, it's the same people, but unfortunately, they are having to answer to some other people that yes. don't necessarily understand <laughs> the industry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I think that that can be that, that can be a little frustrating at times, and yeah, you know, even for me, I, I deal with 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 those companies on a regular basis, and again, I'm dealing with the same people, but they they're frustrated because they don't have the same ability to make decisions that they were able to make five years ago. Now right. you have to go before a big committee and get everyone to sign off on it. So yeah, that's, that's something I think that I see as a competitive advantage for a company like us, because when we see an opportunity and if we think it's something that we need to go after, we're able to make that decision quickly. Mm-hmm. We're, not, yeah. we're not bound by waiting for all of the approvals and, legal legal to take a look at it and make sure the wording's appropriate and yeah yeah yeah. so i do i do see that as as an advantage i was wondering as far as like the formulations when you were talking about that is that something you also work on the actual formulation Mm -hmm. oh wow wow yeah that's that's a lot along with the research. <laughs> um, and and you've published some papers. Are those in conjunction with uh, the universities that are doing your your testing and publishing papers or you have you written some papers on your own? No, they would all be in conjunction with, you know, whether it was universities or when I was working for Kentucky Equine Research, we published several papers. So um, yeah, they would all they would be there, there, there will be several authors in all of those papers. Oh, yeah. And so what does that look like Like with for you? Do you have to write a certain portion of it or you just have to be involved in it? Like, Thankfully, not anymore. But in my early days, I did. And that's another, that wouldn't be a strength of mine. I'm, I'm much better at the, uh, at the, um, the vocal word uh, than I am. I'm trying to put my words down on paper. So, uh, yeah, thankfully I don't have to, I don't have to write the papers anymore. So my, my part in it is, you know, providing the formula and, and we trashing out the protocol and, and all of that. And the other part of it that I don't have to do anymore either, which I did have to do in my early stage was crunching all of the numbers and the statistics part of it. And, mm-hmm. um, I remember when I was in university and I had to take a statistics class and I was, very adamant that this was something that I'd never need to use in my career. <laughs> yeah. I to do this, and then lo and behold, about four years later, I'm sitting in my office and I'm trying to figure out the statistics, and I'm like, mm, "Never say never." So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad to be out of that part of it because uh, you know, the universities as well, they have a lot of resources mm-hmm. to be able to do fancy t- statistics and all of that. And again. The, the written word is not my strength. 
you know i can i can stand up in front of a group of people and talk and get my point across a lot better than i can trying to get it down on paper mm. so so would you say that you um that it's an advantage that you did the written part of it to help you with your uh presentations or do you think that you're just better at doing the presenting and talking I don't know that the writing part in its own right um, has given me an advantage, but I think the whole the whole procedure of research, which I was involved in at the early stages, from you know developing the protocol to actually taking the blood samples, doing the trial, to crunching the numbers, to writing the paper. Um, I think that whole process has given me a, an understanding that. I obviously wouldn't have had if I hadn't that background. And I think yeah. that definitely gives me an advantage. I, it probably gives me a little bit more confidence. You know, yeah, I, you yeah. know you, to me, if you truly understand something, you can be a lot more confident. For sure. Think, you know, that some of that is just, it's embedded in me because I, I did it for so long that, that uh, you know, that, that you have... I don't know if confidence is even the right word, but you know you have the data in there if you can just get it out of you. Yeah. So I think mm-hmm. that's that whole that whole time I think has has served me extremely well. And you know, it's it's a it's a difficult um, it's a difficult job because going back to what I said about research, that you might get one answer and nine questions, hmm. and you may have spent six months doing that work and then you know it's hard slog hands on and and you know when you turn around and you you don't get all of the answers that you thought you were going to get that can be kind of deflating and what can be even more deflating is if you're feeding something to a horse say for a lot of the work that we did we'd feed it at certain diets for maybe four to six weeks and then we'd have the test day and that could be that we're taking blood samples from them every hour for eight hours, or it could be that we were running them on the treadmill and mm-hmm. taking all the data, including blood samples and heart rate and all that. But what can be most frustrating is that day of the study, you could have a horse that's eating the treatment every day, no problem. And for some reason, the day of the study, you feed them and they're like, nah, I don't feel like eating today. <laughs> You're just like, you were blown <laughs> months of work here. You've got to eat it. That, you know, that I found, and that did happen. And, oh, and that's frustrating. Horses always try and ruin your plans, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, they're 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 live animals, so yeah. you, it's not a computer you're dealing with that you can program it. So that's, you know, that that could be very draining on, on the brain, so... That to me was something that I could never do long term because, you know, you you didn't have you never have control over everything, but you certainly could be made feel very humble, <laughs> you know, if they decided not to cooperate on on the day. So it's a it's a tough it's a tough career path. How hard is it to abandon a product or an idea when? the research comes back that doesn't support what you thought it was going to do? You know, as, as regards should we or shouldn't we, um, it's a pretty easy, we shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's never really up for debate. But 
I think sometimes you're. It is difficult to to abandon it. You you kind of want to go. Okay, well, maybe if we do this study, you know, or we redo it, but we test these parameters. But I, I think you know after a certain amount of time, yeah. or if it if the data is showing no no sign of encouragement, I think you know this. Look, right now it's not worth it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you can come back to it later if if new things come to light and absolutely. And you know, yeah. sometimes that can be two or three years later, and you're focused on something else, and you think, you know, when we were doing that other trial and we saw X, you know, so yeah, it's it's rarely that you get nothing from a study, but um, you know, it it is hard to walk away. But I think the decision to do is is not that difficult to mm-hmm. make. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, helpful in your line of work to have like the clear cut data to tell you don't do this because <laughs> I think so many people in business don't don't know when to abandon things even though I mean I guess you could look at it from a financial standpoint but even then people we um we had a guest call it the sunk cost fallacy you know you you keep trying and trying and trying when everything's telling you you need to you know cut your losses and and leave it behind. Um, so I find it interesting that you guys have a better way of of doing that and kind of making the decision for you and making it easier. In theory, we do anyway. But yeah, yeah I mean, I think that's that is very important in business. And I mean, we all, I think, probably take stick with some things a little longer than we should. But you know, it is critical that you're able to. Um, just make a decision and say this isn't working. And, yeah, you know, to me that's that's very important. You have to be able to. There, there's never any shame in in getting it wrong. In, yeah. in my opinion, you know, you, the, the shame will be if you know you've got it wrong and you keep going. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's where the shame is. Like you, no matter how well you research something and you start out in a certain road you're going to find out information that's going to redirect you mm-hmm. some way along there and and you have to react to that and if you don't i mean that's where you run into trouble and, yeah you know you've you've and even sometimes it it, it means that you've you it sets you back a year or uh, and i'm just talking general business or it's right. going to cost you a significant amount of money but you know if you become aware of more information as you're going you you got to react to it. You, mm-hmm. you just have to. And um, you said earlier that you you do business, you know, in the Middle East. Or um, what challenges do you have with international sales? Kind of looking at the once you have the products, you've done all the research, you know it works. Now you're trying to sell it to different markets. Um, you know, are there challenges that for you guys to sell? Um, I mean, there's obvious challenges that it's totally different country, different culture. But to be honest, I I love the international business. And I guess it it's a benefit to me that I'm living in a foreign country. Yeah. You know, so I've you know I've experienced different uh cultures. But I do I love the international business. And I would say the international business, you know, a lot of the people that I do business with have now become very good friends of mine. And Generally, in the international markets, they want exclusivity. Um, mm. So, 
it's a little bit different than it is over here. You know, they won't take on competing lines because they get exclusivity. So they are very focused on your line and it's in their best interest to promote it and they know they're going to reap the benefit of it. But with that, there has to be a lot of trust. And obviously you can sign agreements, but my motto on agreements is, yes, we sign them. But being aware that an agreement is only as good as the lawyer that's going to tear it apart. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> And every agreement can be torn apart. So there has to be trust. Um, because if you're just relying solely on a legal agreement, uh, you know, I, I, I just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't give the fuel for a successful relationship in, in mm-hmm. my opinion. So when you develop that trust, um, in these international markets, um, you know, it becomes very much a partnership and they want to grow the brand. And, uh, it, it to me, it's, 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 it's enjoyable. Um, mm-hmm. Um, and you know you get to meet some great people as well and exposed to different cultures and you know like I say we we do a lot in the Middle East and I go to Dubai used to go every year or so before COVID um, and I love the place and I've always been treated very very well there and very welcoming it's just a it's a very it's a great experience. It's a very nice place to to, to visit. Um, so, you know, from challenges, there's obviously the, I think probably one of the biggest challenges is, is, is transport and the time span that it takes to get product. And COVID, you know, was always, it's, it's long and it, it's, uh, but COVID made that worse because there was such congestion at the ports mm. and getting availability and sailings was difficult. So something that would take six to eight weeks, which was pretty standard from the time we would leave our warehouse here to get to the Middle East was often taking up to four months. Wow. Um, so it's difficult for the distributors to, to, to plan, you know, their inventory. And then you get these panic emails uh, saying I have to have product next week and we need to airlift product and I need you to help me with the cost of it. And, you know, those those kind of things, I mean, those challenges. So thankfully it seems like the congestion at the ports and some of those uh, issues are finally starting to, to uh, get a little bit better. Um, But that's always, you know, that's, that's always a challenge. Um, and their seasons are so short over there as well. You know, they don't want to overstock because mm. generally in Dubai, their season runs from October to March. Yeah. If they overstock, they got a, you know, they, they've got several months where nothing is going to move. Um, so it, it is a balancing act, but we've been doing business there for 20 plus years. So, you know, there's, we've, we've, I've got a great distributor over there who is a very good friend of mine and, uh, we got a pretty good understanding. Yeah. And are there restrictions when you're trying to sell internationally? Like, are there countries who might ban a certain ingredient or how do you deal with those? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a definite challenge. Um, and we generally rely and make it the um, responsibility of our distributor there to work mm. through a lot of that. We will help them, but we yeah. make it their responsibility to come back, to find out all the information and come back to us with the information. This is what we have to do. This is the paperwork that we have to submit. So we kind of put the onus on uh, on the distributor for that because 
it's their country and they've got a much better understanding of it. Mm-hmm. And again, the exclusivity helps there because obviously they don't want to help with the import process if then I'm going to go in and start selling to everybody that wants to buy products so they know they're protected. Um, so some countries are, are more difficult than others. Um, and I would say it's becoming more difficult than it had been in the past. So it helps that we're established and we've got some registrations and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's it's a process that you have to have to work through. And it tends to be a lot of work on the front end mm-hmm. when you initially go into a country. There's a lot of paperwork that goes back and forth. and uh, But then once you have it set up, it's generally just more of a renewal each year. So, you know, it's it's uh, it's it definitely most of the work is on the front end. Has there ever been an, um, a time when you haven't been able to get your product into a, a country? And there's been times that, you know, we've had containers sitting at the port waiting to be cleared and mm. run into an issue and have yeah. to try and figure out how to get this issue resolved. And that can be that can be sleepless nights, you know. Yeah. Again, you know, there's there's always a solution. You just have to look hard enough. Oh, yeah. And so I used to ship frozen semen to Europe and um, it was going to Sweden, but the Swedish vet was very difficult to get the paperwork through. She was very particular. So we'd always send it to Denmark and then they'd like drive it across <laughs> the border and didn't have a problem. <laughs> yeah. See, there's always a solution. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm very fortunate again with the distributors that we have. They're, they're the type of people that think outside the box and will try and figure out a solution as opposed to just throwing up their, their, their mm-hmm. arms. And you know, I find with all of these authorities, if you're if you show them that you're trying to work with them and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to do it the right way, they generally will work with you and help you. It's when you try to not do it the right way and then, you know, they 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 have the authority to make your life hell and they will. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, we, we try to get it right on the front end so we don't run into issues. But yeah. um, you know, there's always there's always a challenge that comes up with you just have to keep keep working on it, and finally, you'll get to the right person that can give you the right information that will get you, you you sorted. Yeah, and for the patents that you said you have for products um, in the U.S., how does that work when you have products in other countries? Does that patent still apply there? Not automatically, no. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's um, some countries you have to file separate patents and some countries there are agreements where you can um you don't have to start from scratch and mm. uh, there are certain time spans as well that if the patent is granted here in the US that you have to apply in the other countries within a certain time span um so it's it can get messy in, in the international uh and the same with trademarks, you know, you got to be careful with your trademarks. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have had trademarks taken from us in the international market. So you have to be, um, you have to be very, very careful. Um, yeah. You know, it's because uh, other people can trademark your product. Right. Um, it sounds like a lot of additional research just on that side of it. Um just to yeah. find out what the rules are and everywhere that you go. 
Yeah, and, you know, the the US uh, intellectual property lawyers tend to be well-versed in that, and we have two companies that, that we use, and they're very, very knowledgeable in all of that. So, you know, typically it's a it's an email or a phone call and they'll they'll know the answer it's, mm-hmm. so it's it's something that they're dealing with on a, on a regular basis um so we you know we're fortunate that we can tap into them for that type of information but you know if you don't it's you can't afford to trademark in every everywhere country. right yeah it just it's not financially viable so you have to first and foremost you have to have that as part of your international agreements on that piece of paper that a good lawyer can tear apart but nevertheless you kind of you know that's something that is a standard in the agreement that they will not attempt to trademark any any of your products and uh, then you kind of have to stay vigilant as well Um, Mm -hmm. and the key with it is if someone else does trademark your product if you if you catch it in the early stages it's a lot easier to fight it than if they if they if it goes a year or two, it's it's a lot more difficult to fight it. Yeah, and it's you know it's like anything. It, how valuable is it to you? Because it's going to cost a lot of money to fight it, especially when it's in international markets. So, right, uh, being proactive is definitely uh, a big benefit than being reactive in, in those situations. Mm. That's really good advice. Yeah. So Dubai is a bucket list place for me to go. I'm really really want to go. I've heard from several people that it's a really great place to go, but you had um, kind of a cool experience recently in Dubai. Can you talk about your horse, that one? Yeah, it was an experience of a lifetime. <laughs> I think I might finally be just coming back to to uh, to Earth. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have a, a racehorse called uh, Sibelius, uh, myself and another uh, partner that I have horses with, uh, June Park, who's from Korea. Um, we, he and I have broodmares for the most part together. Uh, we bought this horse as a uh, short yearling, so it was in the January sale, with the mindset that we were going to put him back in the September sale. And uh, we did put him back in the September sale, but nobody wanted to buy him because he was a lovely looking horse, but he, uh, he had a little issue on his x-ray and his knee and all the vets failed him. Huh. So we were left scratching our head as to what we do now because neither the two of us had racehorses at the time we were breeding racehorses but we weren't intending having the actual racehorse (laughs) but we did end up racing him and uh he's five now um he uh he broke his maiden second time out of keeneland as a three-year-old and uh then just in the last six months i mean he's just flourished into a fantastic horse he's coming off three stakes wins in a row and the last one was the grade one the golden shaheen in dubai so um to say that that was an experience of a lifetime is probably the understatement of the century on on my behalf um you know we were it was in the back of our mind at the end of last year if he did uh hold his form that you know that was a goal to try and get to uh dubai and uh he did his part and we went over there knowing that we were running against, he's a sprinter, running mm. against the best sprinters in the world. Uh, we knew that the way he was training, that he was had the potential to run the best race of his life. 
what we didn't know was, was it going to be good enough to beat the best horses in the world? <laughs> and um, he showed us. And he, the, the week was just fantastic over there. It was really a special experience, you know, and they, they just put on fantastic, you know, just the hospitality was, was fantastic. The horse traveled great. He traveled like he had just gone down the road. And yes. He was in his element out there. He's a very photogenic horse. <laughs> and, uh, everybody used to wait for him in the morning to come on the track and he would just stand up there and wait for his photo to be taken. So he loved, <laughs> he loved the limelight. Um, but the race really didn't pan out as we had hoped or the way that we thought it would need to pan out for him to win because he generally runs from the front. In a six furlong race, you don't have a whole lot of time. So the plan was to get him out into the first two or three and, you know, hope he could stay up there and hold him off. And uh, for some reason that day, he broke really lazy and he was a half length behind where he needed to be. And he was in the one hole. So they came across and cut him off. And we had every emotion in those 60 plus seconds because when we broke bad, we were just like, oh, no. <laughs> we were like oh i won't say what we were saying <laughs> i was you know we thought we were we were done yeah and then he ryan moore who's the jockey just gave him a fantastic ride and he kept him on the rail and a little gap opened and my god that horse just i don't know how he did it but he he did it and uh, he passed those horses no problem when a horse came up on the outside and nearly got him. So it was a photo finish in the end. Wow. We were standing right at the rail and we thought we had it. And the trainer picked me up and swung me around and I landed back <laughs> on the ground. It was announced that it was a photo finish. So it was um, it, it, it was just unreal. I mean, it, and there's, there's a great group of people involved with the horse, uh, his trainer and he's a, he's jerry's assistant who's also rides him and his groom ricardo just fantastic group of people so it was just it was i don't think anything can ever um come close to that you know i mean hopefully our goal now is to get him to breeders cup this year but oh, wow know, that's was, so cool it was fantastic and he's just <laughs> a, he's just a dude of ours you know he just he he's he's just a big baby <laughs> That's awesome. That's so great that you got to experience it. Are yeah. you going to keep more now instead of selling them all? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> You've got, got the bug now. So, yeah, I mean, that's the bad part of it. Is you think, oh, this is easy. Right. No, I know it's not. So, yeah. But you definitely, I mean, that sort of a feeling. And don't get me wrong. I know the chances that ever happening again are slim, but it just... Even his wins before that, it's a fantastic feeling, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's just getting into the winner's enclosure and, um, and you know, just it, it's just it's it's great. So yeah, I would definitely race some more. So it'll be a nice balance because you gotta you gotta sell something to pay for them. Right. You know, it's an expensive game to be involved in, but thankfully, you know, he's uh, he's he's going to pay the way for a lot more. He's he's paid for himself and and many more behind him so again i feel so so fortunate uh to have ended up with a horse like him uh, and again it wasn't by design you know so mm -hmm. again things happen for a reason yeah that's, that's so awesome. great well um we've really enjoyed talking to you and hearing about um you know how you have 
gone throughout your career and the advice that you have for people maybe in similar situations. So we really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. I enjoyed chatting with you guys too. So at the end of each episode, we ask the same four questions to each guest and Connor starts with the first. What is one action that women can take to make a big difference in their lives? You know, for me, I think, and I mean, this is advice for anybody, you know, to have self-belief and, and, and confidence. And I think I was very, very fortunate. My dad um, instilled that in, uh, I'm the youngest of five and all of us as kids, you know, he he truly believed that we had the ability to accomplish whatever we set our, our minds to. Mm-hmm. And I took that for granted, you know, growing up, I just thought that's what parents did. But, you know, just that that true belief that he had in us that is definitely transferred and um you know it, it gives me confidence sometimes when i'm making a decision or i'm thinking can i do that and i'm like yeah of course i can you know I <laughs> work a little bit harder and it's a risk but so i i you know i i, I truly think that that is one of the 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 most important things that my dad ever gave me you know that's it it's a true gift and i think it's a big part of, of my success yeah, love that. And what's the best habit that keeps you motivated personally? For me, I think it's to be challenged because um, I perform best when I am challenged. I'm someone that can get, I'm not, I don't do good in doing the same thing all the time. You know, I need to be given challenges and when I'm given the challenges, I'm probably given out about it and, um, you know, stress, but it, I think it does bring out the best in me and I work best under pressure. So I, I definitely, to me, I have to be challenged. Yeah. Yeah. Like she gets up at two o'clock in the morning to finish presentations. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. That's because I was under the gun at that stage. Yeah. Now or never. And, that's when <laughs> mind kicked in. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. I do that at times as well. Yeah. <laughs> I hate it, but yep. That's I know I know myself well enough by now that I just expect it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite horse movie? I guess I would have to say Secretariat scene is the it's the fiftieth anniversary of yeah. his, uh, of his triple crown win and you know, not that Sibelius is any secretary, but, you know, it's been a fairy tale story for me. So okay. I think I would have to go with that. Awesome. And who would you recommend to be a future guest on this podcast? Yeah, this is a difficult one because there's so many great people out there. But um, I think I would recommend Dr. Spike Pierce from uh, Rude and Ready because, mm. you know, I, she was and is such a fantastic veterinarian and so well respected in the orthopedic side of things and what she what she focused on and now she stepped into the role as uh, a ceo of you know a huge clinic with with several different uh, clinics throughout the country so i think um and i know she's a horse person true and true comes from a standard background so i think she would be a very very interesting uh, person to, to have on Awesome. Thank you. It was such a pleasure speaking with you today. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. I very much enjoyed it. So I appreciate the opportunity. I really enjoyed um, talking with Delia. I know you you knew her prior to this interview, um, but it was cool to hear about you know her, her education and all the different things that she's done leading up to her current position. And um, you can tell she does have the passion for it. 
Yeah, she really is passionate about it. She's a good speaker. And I really loved how, how she started out talking about taking a wrong turn that made the right turn because that happens so many times mm-hmm. to people. And, you know, some people admit it and some people don't, but she kind of owns it. And I think that it's really made her who she is and gotten her where she is at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, for sure. She said, like, I didn't absolutely love working purely in the, you know, laboratory clinical side of things, but all of that, you know, experience makes her confident and, and able to, you know, make good choices in what she does now. Yeah. And it's a tough position too, uh, because, you know, she has to be an expert and present to veterinarians Mm. and, I think that the nutraceutical space is a little bit different than say what I do in pharmaceuticals because we have all these steps with FDA approvals that we yeah. have to go through. And it's nice that her company does all the research and the studies that they do to prove that their products are good. Um, I think that it's a little different than where my position is um, in a pharmaceutical company company because the FDA approvals that we have to go through, uh, nutraceutical space is a little bit different. And I think that um, it's great that her company does all the research that they they do and all the testing that they do um, in order to put out great products. And I'm, I think that that's what makes her such an expert in the things that she does, but also being able to stand up and talk in front of veterinarians, which I think can be a little bit difficult mm-hmm. um, when you don't have that that pharmaceutical that you're trying to sell when Mm. it's a nutraceutical getting veterinarians on board um, can be a little bit more difficult because there's uh, so many different products and and it's kind of um, a packed space and she really has gained the respect of a lot of veterinarians in the field so I think that that comes from you know her being her research and really being a company that stands behind their products right I, I liked her talking about um, when to abandon a product and when to know that it's not right at this time. Um, and I really like the thought of, okay, it's not working now, but maybe in two years when there's different research or there's new ways of putting ingredients together or a new ingredient pops up that you didn't know would work with something else. And I I think that can be translated to other businesses in saying, you know, if it's something that interests you and something you feel strongly about, okay, it it may not work right now, but it may work down the line. Yeah. And not to completely shut it out if you think that it's something worthwhile. Um, you know, recognize that it's not working right now and that you need to stop, you know either spending a ton of money or time on it and come back to it when you can. Oh yeah, definitely. I think that's such an important point. And I also liked her point about, you know, the steady growth and the three years, Mm -hmm. the three years was making me think of Adele and Mm -hmm. how, um, you know, the women in business show, the three we're going to give it three years to make something work. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, Oh, that's kind of along the same lines. Um, 
with Delia's company and that, you know, they, they see the growth over the first three years and then it continues to grow. And it's not this like huge shoot up and spike. So Mm -hmm. for me, it's kind of like, I, I think that's like such a good business plan because so many times you see people go uh, all out and then they hit a plateau. And, you know, I think that being able to just maintain growth over time is, is really important. More of slow and steady wins the race yeah. uh, mindset. And, you know, if you're going to be a company that stands behind its products and, you know, has to put so much time into bringing something to market, I think you have to give it the time to have proper growth in sales. And yeah. that's, I think that's kind of their what seems like their business model. Um, so it's, it was, it was cool to hear her background and I loved hearing the story about her racehorse. That was so cool. I know. And you know, <laughs> I, I totally get what she's talking about, like wh- how surreal it can be. Right. So I went to the Kentucky Derby a few years ago and it was the best experience ever. So, so much so I'll probably never go back because mm. you could never recreate the experience that I had. I had a friend who had a horse he was training that was in the Derby. His name is Tax. And he invited us to come down and he gave us all these passes to all these little private parties and areas in the grandstand. And we went and did that. But for the actual race, we didn't like really have a particular seat, but he had hooked us up with this gentleman who was uh one of the um, track photographers, but he mm-hmm. happened to not be a photographer that day because he was coming back from some kind of injury surgery or whatever. So he was hanging out with us the whole day. And just when the race started and it had rained, um, just when the race was going to like go off, he was like, Oh, we have to run up and be in the grandstand for when they sing and bring the horses out. And we did. And we ended up in a box on the finish line that nobody was using. Wow. And it was so cool because, and then people were like in boxes next to us. They're like, oh my God, you're here with Dax. Oh yeah, we're going to cheer for him. And so (laughs) it was so cool. And I was like, oh, I'll never be able, like I would never be able to afford the tickets to be on the (laughs) box on the finish line. And there was this empty box and we just walked right in and boom, watched the race from there. And it was incredible. So, so for Delia to like, go to Dubai and have all of that taken care of in the hospitality and then your horse to win it is incredible. Yeah. That was so cool. (laughs) Yeah. And you know what? Like good for her. She's a small breeder and, you know, small owner to win a big race like that. I'm like, that's just so exciting. It gave me chills when she was talking about it, honestly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Really cool. Yeah. Well, I've got a lot of things going on. So I'm going to run, but you can find the links to today's guest and the show notes at www.eqbusinesswomen.com. Equestrian B2B is out twice a month on the 1st and the 15th. You can find out more at eqbusinesswomen.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Find Equestrian B2B wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow, subscribe, and leave a review so others can find us as well. You can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with their free app for iPhone and Android. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. Now go do your research. 